Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. There's a lot of hype in the industry around test-driven development. Not only does it help ensure code quality while keeping everything nice and decoupled, it also makes it easier to confidently make changes in the system with less concern for breakage. Test-driven development, or TDD, can work pretty well in a lot of situations and has lived up to the hype in many cases, but not all. There are a lot of things that can trip you up as you get going with TDD, especially in the early phases. Some of these you have to get right when doing TDD, and we'll be talking about these in the episode. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, I've been doing TDD at work, uh, which is why this episode came up. I've been doing that um, since last week. We've got a new project. You know, They're really pushing the testing thing because they've kind of realized, hey, we've got to get this under control. Um, obviously they're doing integration testing and user acceptance, acceptance testing, but I'm trying to get the actual app tested as I'm building it. And so I'm using the test to drive it. And it's been really nice. I'd forgotten how much I liked doing that. The other thing is I spent most of a week with your dog, uh, last week, since you were out of town on vacation, your dog stayed here. And I basically, I think I walked him twice during that week. My daughter walked him, fed him, watered him petted him he basically slept upstairs at the foot of her bed you know i would go up there i went up there a couple of times and you know it's like come on scout let's go walk and he would just look at me and he just lay his head back down he just, <laughs> just would not like i don't need you yeah <laughs> i was like man you know i thought i was thought i was a little higher on the totem pole than that but apparently not so that All was right, entertaining so, so you know what um i had my first dog sitting job when i was about your daughter's age so, if you don't mind, I think next time I go on vacation, oh yeah, I I might just you know hire her to dog sit for me. That's a thought, and then I don't have to do anything. Not that I did. <laughs> I mean, we watched like we, I had the three dogs and her, and we watched Turner and Hooch. Oh, wow! <laughs> so that was that was also amusing because every time the dog would bark, all three dogs would be staring at the screen. Or you know, one of my dogs does anyway. Yeah, especially with X Files. Told you about that, right? Mm-hmm. Olive, she'll just stare. At X-Files. We haven't figured out what it is, if there's like some sound that we're not hearing, but she'll just stand and stare at the screen for like the entire show. And you're like, man, that's, that's like something out of X-Files. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how about you? Well, like you said, I just got back from visiting my family in Cleveland. It was a lot of fun. Probably one of the best family vacations I've had. And I think a big part of that was because... Oh, we got an Airbnb large enough for me to have my own room. The problem with being the only single sibling is I typically end up sleeping on the pull-out couch when we go on trips. So, this was really nice. There's something about having my own space that I need, and it really made the trip a lot better for me. I had a great time. Not to mention the fact that I got to check off two things from my bucket list. We visited Niagara Falls. And I got to eat wings in Buffalo, New York, at the place where they originated. That was an unexpected one because my brother-in-law wanted to do it too. And since we were going to be driving within a few miles of the place on the interstate heading back, we just decided, hey, the family needs to eat dinner. Let's stop there and eat. Nice. (laughs) So you got to actually eat chicken wings. Yes. And I didn't. Right around the same time. (laughs) Because of the whole, you know, freezer. Yeah. Thawing. Yeah. Um, thing. And I'll tell you what was hilarious. My mom and my sister, neither one of them like chicken wings. And since we were there, they both wanted to try them. So my mom ate one of mine. My sister ate one of my brother-in-law's. And both of them were like, we could eat these wings. These are good. We could actually eat them. Wow. Yeah. That's how good they were. Yeah. Because I, I remember your sister not liking yeah. wings. My only complaint was that they had all the time planned out. So what little downtime that we had, I was resting because otherwise we were on the go constantly. Yeah, those kind of vacations are a little 
difficult for me as well when, when it's all planned out because I really do need a lot of downtime. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't do well if I'm constantly running. I, I went on a trip a few years back that was like that. And, you know, I would get up at seven in the morning and I would have four slices of bacon for breakfast and a glass of orange juice. And then I, the next time I ate was at midnight. No. And everything in between was planned. And mm-hmm. It was just, I lost a ton of weight. <laughs> so that was only two days. Uh, two of the days we had a little bit less. Um, Saturday and Sunday wasn't as much. But it was still pretty planned out, and so it was it was a lot, but it was a lot of fun. Um, it's funny that we're talking about test-driven development because our QA lead has resigned, and so we are in the process of interviewing a new QA lead. So that's, that's really cool. Since we're talking about TDD, I've got an article about testing IoT. Testing code in a production-like environment has become an integral part of development. This article titled Automated Testing for the Internet of Things talks about various approaches to testing the hardware and software in IoT. First, it talks about why it's hard to test Internet of Things applications, then goes into the specifics of testing and sort of talks about what you need to do to set up testing software and emulators and things like that. The article includes information on tools such as virtual environments and said emulators. It's a really neat article. I'm going to have a link to it in the show notes for you guys to check out. Who's talking to us this week? Well, we got an email from Amanda. It said, hey, just wanted to let you know about a small bug on your sign up for updates box, bottom right corner of the homepage. When I entered my info and hit subscribe, the response text was in green and stacked on top of itself, so I couldn't read it. I grabbed a screen cap if you need it. Love the show. Thanks for such great content. Looking forward to the next episode. Amanda. Amanda, thanks for listening and subscribing to the newsletter. Will puts a lot of work into that each week, and we're always talking about how we can improve the content we produce. I'm glad our efforts are paying off. We'll definitely look into the bug. Uh, obviously, we we don't do a whole lot of test-driven development uh, on that site. Um, well, I'm trying to think when we even set that up. That was, oh, that's been a long time. Almost three years ago? Yeah. Part of it is the fact that we restrict the size of the content for the sign-up, and we're using MailChimp's embedded content. Ah, uh, so if they changed it, then we got burned. Right, and that's what happened with this Um you're not the only one to have noticed this, and we are looking at a solution. We really do thank you for, for letting us know. Send us another message with your contact information because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. Anything you can do to help us improve the show or improve the website, we are definitely down for listening to. We also post all of our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Google+. We're on Instagram, Path, and Tumblr. You can check us out each week on Facebook and Twitter Live, where we talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer some listener questions, or join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Test-driven development is a different way to think about the design, development, and maintenance of applications. It makes it easier to make larger changes to an application without worrying about breaking things, makes it easier to get going and keep going while writing code, and can even decrease the rate of errors over time as an application evolves. In general, TDD will result in cleaner, less coupled code, much faster testing, and a more stable application overall. That is, if you can get past a few things that tend to trip people up. In this episode, we're going to discuss a few things that you run into that can make testing processes in general and TDD in specific more difficult. These are not just programmatic issues. Many of the things that cause TDD to go off the rails don't happen in the IDE. A lot of this episode comes from Will's experience trying to get TDD working in various environments. Including the one I'm in now. Right. And I've been doing TDD on and off where I work for the past couple of years. Yeah, it takes a while to to really lock into it, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, uh, one of the other developers and I 
we decided, hey, we we had taken a class on extreme programming and wanted to to give TDD a try. So we had it wasn't exactly a side project, but it was something that we were working on together uh, as a service for everyone to use. So we we did TDD on that because we didn't have the time constraints that a regular project had. Yeah. And we were able to really kind of get a few things done when I've got the time to put into it because I haven't quite gotten it to where I'm fast enough to do it when there's I have a time either. crunch. Yeah. When I do have the time, I I do TDD. Uh, when I don't have the time, I do test post development. Yeah. Um, and what I'm doing right now is I'm actually building an API endpoint and executable that calls it. Mm-hmm. And so I've got the whole stack of stuff in there, but there's only like, I think there's like eight or 10 different calls and they all have to act the same because of the way the API needs to be. And so I've yeah. actually got test assertions around all that stuff. And so there's, there's a massive generics down in the guts of that thing <laughs> for the <laughs> test. It's, it's great. If I have to put a new message up, there's like, you know, there's like five classes I have to make inheritors of. And then I've got the test structure for that entire workflow. Yeah. And then I can just put in the specific things. So it's, cool. it's nice. Now, it really stunk when I was building it. <laughs> so the first thing that we're going to talk about as to why test-driven development may not be working for you is you aren't giving your team time to adjust. And that is exactly what we were just talking about with my team had the time in our schedule. We did TDD. And we do it more often now because we've gotten faster at it. Uh, the instructor that we had on the extreme programming class told us, it's like, it's really hard right at first, but the more you do it, the faster you get at it until the next thing you know, you're just doing it. Yeah. And it, it does take a while. I've done it in several different places. And the thing is, you lose that over mm-hmm. time. And so you go back to it and you're like, oh, okay, I remember this now. You know, every time I create something that's going to be consumed, I have to make an interface for it, or I right. probably should. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and setting up all that stuff, thinking about your dependency injection from the get-go, thinking about things you're asserting, uh, what exceptions you're throwing, how you're structuring things. Is this testable? Uh, doing stuff like isolating your database calls. So, like, I moved my stuff into uh, – I've got basically uh, lightweight repositories for the, the actual database calls, and I mock those. So, all it's doing is going, okay, go out to the stored proc and get the results and hand it back to me in plain old class objects. And that part isn't tested, but everything else is. Mm-hmm. Because I figure that if the database is right, I'm probably okay. Now, that's not perfect, but it works well enough to get tests in place, and then I can actually worry about the database. But it's it's been a real pain point, and it's even more painful if you haven't done this before. No. And, you know, the, there's a big change in your headspace. Yeah. When you're going between doing that and not. Yeah, because you don't run the app right. half the time. You know, you like, I, I think I went like a day and a half between running the app mm-hmm. and the next time I ran it because I was, I was running tests like every three or four minutes I had the tests running, but now when you, when you run your tests, do you run all of your other tests at the same time? Well, we don't have that many Okay, and they're all lightweight. And so it's like, yeah, I, you know, I, I finished something and I have a test stood up and I hit uh control UL because mm-hmm. I got the resharper test thing and it just runs it all. And then I go back to what I was doing. Now, speaking of ReSharp, or not, and this is a .NET specific thing, but I really love their dot .cover because it yeah. tells you how much of your code is covered by the test. So you're using that? Not currently, but we when I was testing it out and trying to talk them into getting it, we were. The issue we ran into with, with ReSharper was, I think what's causing a lot of your problems is because of the way it runs on top of Visual Studio it caused a lot of problems for people and nobody really wanted to deal with those problems. Yeah. You have to have it configured properly and yeah. And be willing to spend the time and learn all, learn all the uh, shortcut keys. It, it, it takes a minute. It's worth it, but yeah. And the change between doing regular development, you know, air quotes and TDD is about like changing frameworks or languages or possibly both. Cause mm-hmm. you're really changing your whole headspace and the problem on a team is that not everybody is going to learn at the same rate. So you got a few people that'll pick it up and they'll just take to it like a duck to water. And then you got other people that'll take to it like a cactus to water. <laughs> yeah, buy-in can be very difficult to attain from team members that 
are really set in their ways. Yeah, and it doesn't take very long for that to happen. Uh, you know, junior developers will get that way after a year or so when they get comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't move off of comfort. I have seen this with with people before, where you're you're trying to get them to do best practices type things, and because they've gotten used to not doing them, they fight it. And you're like, but. If if I had tried to get you to do this six months ago, you would have been completely on board because you would have you know this is the right way to do it. Yeah, and now they're comfortable and they don't want to do it. They don't want to go through the pain of learning something new. Right. And yeah, it's it's a real problem, especially on a team because people are learning at different speeds, mm-hmm. and so that puts a a lot of pressure between team members that you. If you're not accounting for that going in, you'll get burned by it. Now, in regular development, you just start going the direction you're trying to go. Whereas in test-driven development, it's more like trying to figure out what constitutes going the wrong way and then testing for that to drive things in the right direction. Yeah, so it's it's like the difference between going, okay, I'm, I'm driving to Florida or, or I'm driving to Buffalo, yeah. right? For recent examples, you, you drove to Buffalo. You didn't go... How do I prove that I'm not not driving to Buffalo? <laughs> yeah. Right. And yeah. back into that. And it's like, okay, the only route choices that are available are the ones that get me towards Buffalo. Yeah. I learned it a little bit different where it's. It, well, it's the tail wagging the dog. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a very strange thing it, it's, if you've done classic a, development. Yeah. It's a switch. different mindset. Yeah. That you have to be in because what, what threw me off was writing the tests first because I had always done. You build it, and then you test for if it works, and then you test for you try to break it. Yeah. Now, because of this, you and your team will not instantly be as productive with test-driven development. This is what you and I were talking about earlier, as you are with standard development, at least for a while. It takes time to figure this out. It takes time to get used to this different mindset and this different way of thinking. Productive is in air quotes here because the benefits of TDD aren't obvious for a while. Yeah, until you get good coverage, it's it's not adding real value that people can see. Mm-hmm. And you got to bear in mind, there's the stuff that is valuable and there's the stuff that is seen as valuable. And those sets, if you made a Venn diagram, they do not look like the flag of Japan. <laughs> yeah. It's more like the Death Star. Mm-hmm. So you have to be aware of that going in that you're going to have to get to a point where you can prove the value quickly. Now, that may mean that you don't do the test coverage across the whole app. You may just do a vertical slice and go, okay, this is more stable now. And you can show that versus you know going wide in one area. Also, don't try to do this during crunch time. And that's what I was talking about. When we have time, we do test-driven development. When we're under a crunch, we don't. We still test our code, but we write the code first and then write the test. Yeah. The other thing that gets you is it's easier to brainstorm as a developer, not in test-driven mode, unless yeah. you are really, really used to it. You know, you think, okay, I got to do this, I got to do this, and then I got to do this other thing. Not, okay, well, I'm going to do this, but what can go wrong? And how do I assert that this actually happened? It's, it, it takes a while. It, it, it's, it's a different mindset, basically. Yeah. You don't want to damage your team's performance at a critical time, this will make management not only dislike the idea of test-driven development right now, they may dislike it forever. I've yeah. seen that one happen where you've got to just absolutely fight tooth and nail because somebody five years ago that didn't know what they were doing pushed TDD and broke a bunch of stuff or mm-hmm. you know they made a deadline slip and never again. Oh, yeah. I can totally see that. I I know people in management, not where I work, but that in other places I've worked outside of development who have that same kind of mentality of, you know, it didn't work this one time, then it will never work. Yeah. I've seen that mindset towards JavaScript. I can believe you. Because you think about, you know, where JavaScript was 10 years ago versus now. And they saw, you know, jQuery spaghetti code. And so they don't want JavaScript on their website much. <laughs> I, I've, I've seen that mindset. I, I totally believe you. Tests are added work, and your team really needs to have their early experiences with them without the imminent threat of a deadline. Like I said, it's a matter of when you have the time to do this, 
learn how to do it right. You're not going to switch over from doing .NET to Node when you've got a deadline. Yeah, you're not going to learn how to fight when somebody's yelling World Star. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like that's not a good time. <laughs> and that's about what that's like. Yeah. Because um, you're going to get beat. Now, the next one is one that the unit testing in C-Sharp 7 book that we recently had uh, the authors of on, um, uh, John Calloway and uh, Clayton Hunt. Yeah. Um, in their book, they talk about this. And this is something I've noticed, but it, it really jumped out at me as I was reading through this, you know, research in this episode. I'm like, I've got to put this one in here. And that's where if you're listing testing as a separate task in either your project management system or on invoices, you're screwing up. And this will burn you on test-driven development because it's not a line item. It's like saying compiling is a line item. You know, refactoring is a line item. What happens when it's a line item? Now it can be disputed. It puts people in that headspace of, oh, I can cut this out to save money versus this is part of the whole. Okay. I I get that from the perspective of you're billing someone to work where I'm at. That's not. Yeah, you're at the government, but like in a private company, it. It can really be a major factor in that not happening. You don't want to reflect the idea that testing is optional or is an afterthought. It's the same thing with QA, same thing with, you know, getting your build scripts together. It's it's the same thing with all the stuff that actually makes things not blow up on deployment. I mean, we do QA testing and that those are yeah. those are separate tasks. Like we have our UI tasks, our API tasks, our database tasks, and our testing tasks. Right. And a lot of that stuff too, you're, you're more into the acceptance testing phase, which you can get away with, right? Because now it's like, okay, well, if we don't acceptance test, this burns you. Whereas right. they look at unit tests and go, oh, that burns the developers. I don't care. Does that make sense? Like you, you have to think about how you shape things for shareholders so that they don't reach into your development process and make a mess of it. Fair enough. Of course, our shareholders don't really get into the specific tasks. So if I say I need to do unit tests for what I'm building, nobody questions me on it. Yeah. I, I have that benefit. Um, I, I also have the benefit of management that supports unit testing. Yeah. And that's another big one. Um, the other thing is, is developers, when you're doing things in a professional capacity, there's a lot of stuff you really like developers as a group. We need to stop mm-hmm. asking, right? Like it's like a, a doctor going, well, you know, I would biopsy this because it looks, it looks like, you know, you're, you're, you got cancer and it's really growing fast. I'd biopsy this, but I'm going to ask your extended opinion on this. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, I'm going to present you with the facts because I'm a professional. And so it, it it's a mindset shift there too to be able to make TDD work. It's an organizational thing. You, you really need to cultivate that with your management and the clients. Like I said, the way, the way that I have it set up where I work is it's a given fact. We're going to write unit tests. Yeah. And that's the way you're supposed to be. But a lot of places just don't do that. They don't think about, okay, you know, especially developers because they go, oh, we, I don't worry about what the client thinks, but then they ask the client for stuff all the time. Yeah. It's like, you, you're, that's the only thing you do is worry about what the client thinks. So stop doing that. Like if you want to do actual testing and, and do software right, you cannot be in that headspace because you just get burned. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is making things look optional makes them be understood as optional. So it'll burn you later if you get under crunch mode. Then they'll be, oh, don't test it. Just get it out there. And then you get blamed when stuff doesn't work. I know we've had some conversations with QA where like they've said things like, oh, I really like it when you do unit testing because then we have a better experience with QA and there's less bugs. I'm like, I always do unit testing. It's just I, I had started listing that as one of my tasks because, you know, for time tracking. Yeah. And I'm like, I've always been doing that. You, it's a perception that, oh, QA has, oh, you're doing unit testing, so there's going to be fewer bugs. So they see fewer bugs. They see what they want to see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's totally that. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that's like that. And you just, um, the other thing is you have to test. So if you're setting it up to appear optional, what you're really doing is saying, I'm testing for free. And that gets scary real quick because testing can often be as much work as actually developing, mm-hmm. at least. I mean, I know like the test suite I've got for the stuff I'm doing, I think it's four to five X as much code as the actual work. Mm-hmm. TDD may not be working because you're trying to test too much of a legacy system on the first try. If you're trying to retrofit tests 
onto a legacy system while doing TDD on anything new, oh my goodness, you'll need to understand that it can take a while. I could not imagine this, um, especially on some of our legacy stuff that is like um, web forms. Yeah. I don't even know how you do unit tests on that. You, what you do is you push everything down uh, from the web form and into business layer classes and you test those. Like you just, you just go, yeah, I'm just not going to, the web form is going to be real thin. Yeah. (laughs) Because it, like web forms is really bad for testing. Now it's gotten better in newer versions, but like old stuff is is, not. This is older. And and so is ours. Yeah. Um, So you got to be kind of careful about that, but. Legacy code is nasty to test. It's not built for testability. That's That just was not a first-class audience for them, nor was debugging in many cases. Yeah. And it's really hard to convince people to test a system that they believe already works. Mm-hmm. So what you do is you wait until something blows up, and then you build a test around that thing. And then you show, hey, see, if we'd had tests, we could have found this sooner. And yes. I see where you're going with this. That's yeah. You yeah, have to be kind of coy about this stuff. <laughs> that's how I got logging. Yeah. Because I I just put it in my stuff. I didn't tell anybody else to do it. I just put it in my stuff. And then I got asked, hey, why is it it takes you half the time to debug things that it takes the other developers? I'm like, oh, yeah, it's because I've been doing this logging stuff. Yeah. Like, and that's part of the reason I, I beat that in your head. <laughs> and, and, and now management is requiring everyone to do it. Yeah. It makes a difference. Oh. You may need to tease apart pieces of the legacy system in order to actually write good tests. Yeah. So like the web forms example, like you're not going to test a heavy web form. What you're going to do is you're going to separate some code to the JavaScript and some code to the business layer. And you're going to make that web form as dumb as possible so that there's nothing that can go wrong. I mean, it it kind of goes back to if you think about your high school science classes and like doing experiments you want to have as few variables that you don't control as possible that's what you're doing here you're you are reducing the variables outside of your control and you're putting them into pockets of control right you make a beachhead right essentially now the whole thing with testing a legacy system you know i'm sure there's somebody screaming out there this is not tdd right because the code's already written Right, exactly. And it's not, but they're still going to expect you to do it. And what happens is, is when this goes awry, the TDD gets blamed too. And so this this is a fallout from it. I, I would think you've got to put, you're working in a legacy system and you're going to build new things, new features onto a legacy system. You want to do TDD on the new stuff. Yeah. But you also want to be able to test its integration with the old stuff. You want to be able to test the old stuff and make sure it's still working when you use the new features. So you you need to integrate testing into that in order to do TDD on the new stuff you're building. Yeah, a lot of the TDD examples on the web really suck because it's like, hey, I'm building a Greenfield calculator app. Hey, now. <laughs> but, but you get what I'm saying, right? Like, okay, is that anybody's actual situation unless you work on calc.exe at Microsoft? And oh, by the way, it's not Greenfield because it's at least 25 years old. You know, most of what I do is Greenfield. Yeah. Which is really nice. But you integrate with a lot of brown, like deep brownfield. Yeah, I I do integrate with a lot of things. But the the code that I am writing and the applications, my integrations are through API. So the application that I am writing is Greenfield. Now, it's replacing something old. Yeah. It's replacing an older system. But I I do. it's, It's actually kind of exciting. I love what I do. Because I get to do a lot of greenfield development. Who doesn't love? It's nice from time to time. I like brownfield because it's it's so nasty that no that, that only a certain headspace really wants to get in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now the fourth thing that can happen is that you aren't testing enough things, or you're testing the wrong things. And this goes back to the whole being able to show a value prop. You should probably try to test the easiest stuff first and get coverage over that. You know, in other words, get some easy wins before you start doing really hard things that require a lot of mocks and that kind of nastiness. Your goal is to get to the point where tests provide value as early as possible. And then once you have shown that you provide value, it's easier to, to justify doing more of the stuff that provided value. You're also better off testing one section of the code really well than testing all of it poorly. So if you get deep testing in one section and they go, hey, this thing's really stable and we don't have problems with it. Now management starts looking at it and going, okay, how can we do this again? 
it's best to test things where the code is already clean first. These tests can get you used to testing legacy code with less risk. They can also help you sanity check adjacent modules when you expand your tests. Yeah, so the idea here is, you know, like I'll see people do this pattern and it's a really screwed up pattern where they go, okay, this part of the system is is the biggest problem we have, right? And we've got one of those um, that we just absolutely despise. All the developers are like, oh man, I don't want to touch that part of the system. And some of us have to. You don't want to start putting tests on that. Yes, you can show value more quickly, but the problem is, is that system is probably really, really flaky. And so you're not going to catch all the things. So you're, you're getting a high rate of reward, but you're also getting a really elevated rate of risk. You want to get something where you can get a decent reward and no risk. Then you show the value and then you can push on the other thing. You'll be more experienced when you get there versus going for the, you know, like don't start by climbing Everest. Yeah. Also, don't do stupid things like testing framework code. Yeah, I I found some old tests um, in a former project at a former employer, um, well, it's been four years, I guess, more than that, where somebody diligently wrote lots and lots of unit tests. And you know how many of them were valuable? Um, they tested that property accessors and mutators worked. That .NET, you know, I have a C-sharp property, you know, public property, whatever, and that I can set it and I can get the value back out of it. They were auto properties. There was no logic in them. <laughs> yeah. But they tested the crap out of it to make sure that the .NET framework understood properties. Like they wanted to test that thoroughly. Yeah, and I mean, this is just something that when you're learning about testing, they really kind of drill in is test the code you write, not framework and the libraries you use because they're, yeah. they're already tested. Yeah. Now you can test as a spike, right? Like you test the library to go, okay, how does this work? And let me ch- check assumptions. Well, that's but different. you throw those away. Yeah, that's that's not. I, I don't really consider that like it's not TDD, yeah. and it's not really testing code. It's just going, hey, mm-hmm. I, this is a way for me to do a task run to see what works. Along these same lines, the next reason that TDD may not be working is because you're not really doing test-driven development. Yeah, and I know that sounds like a no true Scotsman kind of argument because, oh, it's not working for you because you're not really doing it. Like uh, a lot of people argue about Agile. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I've I've heard that kind of the same way, but TDD means you write the tests first. That means the testing drives the way the app develops. In other words, the system as it functions is an emergent behavior of the type of tests you write. This is a habit that you see a lot from people who aren't used to testing. Yeah. Like if you write large chunks of code and then add tests, you're, you're going to have a problem because it's not going to be testable. So they're going to test at both ends and they're really doing an integration test mm-hmm. at that no. point. And when it breaks, the tests don't provide useful diagnostic information either because things weren't constructed to do that. Right. It tells you somewhere in this process, something broke. Yeah. Which is exactly what a client can tell you. Yeah. It doesn't. So you just you. test on their machines. Just drop it out there. Yeah. <laughs> Put it in production. They'll tell you. <laughs> They'll call you three o'clock in the morning. Yep. Your test broke. Hey, it worked when I tested it in production. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It. If you're not used to writing testable code, you have to get that way before test-driven development really works well. And the only way you get there is by actually doing it. You can also get into trouble by being too rigid about how you structure your code. Yeah, TDD will force you to change the way you code and you have to accommodate those kind of things. So stuff like, okay, I have a um, business logic class that talks directly to the database. Well, I can't test the database stuff. So now I've got to separate that into two different concerns. Yeah. And the lower concern that's talking to the database, since I can't really test that, I need to make a mock which means I got to have interfaces and I got to do things differently. And I've got to construct or inject or something in the caller versus just newing stuff up. So it will change the way that you use the language. It has to. And you've got to go with that instead of fighting it the whole way. You have to also structure your code so that you're actually testing what you think you're testing. I can't count how many times this week I have thought that I was testing something and I wasn't. Because, mm-hmm. like, for instance, you'll have an object and you go, okay, I want a validation method on this object. I want it to be able to say, yes, I'm valid before I send it over the wire. At the other end, I have some stuff going on. Eventually, a payload comes back, right? And so I'm testing that payload workflow, not the initial validation. But my initial validation screwed up and there was a check in the underlying code. And so it's it's erroring 
And something's failing that I expect to fail, but it's not the thing I expected to fail. So I'm not testing what I thought I was testing. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You've got to be really careful how you structure your test. You've got to really think about those kind of things. Am I testing what I intend to test? Otherwise, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to get a lot of red in places where you're like, this should all be green. Next, TDD may not be working because you're testing across system boundaries when you should test contracts. There are some things that are really hard to test. Like, it's difficult in code to prove that something is displayed on the screen. Yeah, like, think about the real difficulty there, right? Like, okay, I get it. HTML, I can say, okay, this element is here and it's got this title. That is not an assertion that it's on the screen. Add the position of that element. That's still not an assertion that it's actually visible on the screen. Add the Z index. It's still not. The only way you can do that is really hook into the browser engine or do some kind of really crazy stuff that, you know, realistically, if you're doing that, you're not testing web apps. You're working for Google on a research project. (laughs) Yeah. You can test side effects in those cases. You can't test the end effect. Yeah. You you can test most things up to. Yeah. Up to the UI. Um, It's really tricky to test databases at the other end. Tricky sometimes to test the file system because. You, know, you like you don't control the code that's writing there, right. the timings, all the other stuff that goes on. So it get, it gets difficult past certain boundaries. And yeah, we've kind of hit on this too, but there are some things that are out of scope of testing because they're not your system. You know, running automated tests regularly against a third party system can be expensive. Yeah. So like, let's say you're testing something that um, I don't know. We t- you know sends email through Mailchimp. We talked about Mailchimp earlier. Um, you know, they have Mandrel. They have their little uh, email sending service, right? Mm-hmm. That's great. I'm testing that emails send, and I'm not mocking that interface. So I test out through through there. What happens? Well, let's see. Mandrel could be down. So my tests break for something that's not my fault. So I think I changed something and broke it, but it's actually they broke it. They could change the data they've returned. Mandrel's done this to me several times where they went from returning just raw uh, JSON with text in it to JSON with embedded HTML, which when you do a form post in web forms, it doesn't like because there's an opportunity for cross-site scripting. Right. When you do the embedded. And that broke us in production because they changed it just one day. No warning to anybody. This broke everything. And I had to drop everything I was doing and do that. If you're testing and they break everything, is it the thing you just did? Or is it somebody changed it on the other end? You don't know. So when you test across the boundary, that's a problem. But the other thing that happens is you're charged on the rate of sending, right? So you send 20,000 emails. I think you get that for free a month. What happens if you have a for loop that doesn't terminate and you go to the bathroom while the tests are running? <laughs> oh. You get dinged, right? Oh, yeah. And not only that, a lot of people that are that incautious are also using their corporate account when they're doing that. So now you just killed deliverability for your company's email going out to its clients. So you, you've got to be really, really careful about testing external systems this way. You test the contract. In other words, the payload I'm sending to them looks right, not, oh, it did it. Now, the other thing with email, of course, is it's also delayed. So you're going to have a hard time testing that anyway. It's like you fire off the tests, and then an hour later, you come back and go, yeah, they came in. So it's, it's a bad testing scenario that you get into doing that. You want to test that you're sending what you expect to send in a given situation. Now, usually this means mocking whatever thing is sending the payload rather than actually sending it. Um, that's a big thing with unit testing and test-driven development, too, is creating those mocks. Right. And making sure that it makes sense. Because, you know, again, getting other people's systems involved means that other people control whether your tests fail or pass, which now means that you can't assert that you broke something. Mm-hmm. Now, I've had conversations with people where... They said, oh, it's really solid code. And I looked at it and I was like, that is completely untestable. Yeah. Like, because you can't mock it. Right. Because you're, you know, you're, you're instantiating the things that you're using right there. You're directly calling things. You're even hard coding things. Mm-hmm. It's, it's bad. It's really easy to get into that, that place as well, especially if you didn't start out doing TDD and now you're going that way. So you have the habits from before, which like, this is the quickest way to get there. But now it's the wrong way to get there. Another thing you are going to probably want to do is actually have a suite of sanity checks for going across the boundary. So things like payment gateways. You want to make sure that that works, but you don't want your regular unit test doing that. And build this in with the sanity checks so that you're not tempted. 
to put that in your unit tests. That's an organizational thing because people go, oh, well, I can't prove that this thing worked. I need a test to prove it works. No, prove it works so that that guy doesn't write those tests and bomb the system. In other words, you're protecting your team if you structure things that way. Go into a little more detail on sanity checks. This is something I'm not as familiar with, and maybe it's just something that we don't do, or I well, you, do and didn't know I did it. You probably don't call out across a boundary a lot. Let's say you've got a payment processor. Um, typically, you'll get a test system from them. Some of them are not so great. And you don't want to run tests against that as part of your normal workload, because it's going to slow your unit test run down. Right. Um, the other thing it's going to do to you is they can break their system, right? So you don't really want that to be part of the regular process, but you do want to set a test that go, okay, I know that if I send this payload to it, that I get this response and that that's still true in case they change something. You're unit testing that across the boundary that that stuff doesn't break, but you understand that those tests are not you that broke it. I I see what you're saying. Usually we do this not with automated tests, but... Yeah, you'll have like a you'll have a scripted set of tests that are set to ignore, and you run those manually. Yeah, to do yeah, it. That's and and the reason you do this is not because that's valuable, which it is, but it's because it keeps your team from writing tests that cross the boundary and really screwing up. That's one of those little things that it, like you you shift it slightly, and you can fix the way the team does stuff instead of having to fight with it. Yeah, I I, I follow you there. That that makes a lot of sense. The next thing that can really screw you up is when you are trying to do TDD without approval. I know it's best practice, right? But if you start doing it and you don't have some kind of clearance from management, even to the extent of just going, yeah, try that out and see how it works, you can really get into trouble quickly. It's hard to swap over to a TDD approach to development without somebody noticing. Because the idea is you're changing. like You're changing the system in a noticeable way. That's what you're trying to do with TDD. And you're also trying to change the system in a noticeable way without anybody noticing it if you're sneaking. That's not a real good thought process for somebody that's trying to do a leadership type thing. For so the team. it depends on how many people are working in the code and how many people are in on it. Yeah. Well, there. Yeah, exactly. And it depends on if you are already doing unit testing. So if you already are building you know, like units of testable code, like you're doing unit testing, but you're not doing test driven development, then it would be possible to to do that for your code and say, hey, look at the improvements I've made by applying test-driven practices to what we're already doing. Right, because you're probably already doing it mostly right anyway yeah. at that point. If you're not already doing unit tests and testing your code and building your code to be testable, then it's going to make a big difference. So like where I work, we do unit tests. We build our code to be testable. Except where we don't. Yeah, it, we, that's just reality. Yeah, but you know, it, we we strive to build our code to be testable. So moving from testing post development to test driven development isn't a big shift. It's just it's a mindset change on how we think about our code, not how we write our code because we're already writing the code in it, testable chunks. Right. In other words, the difference in the team performance is not going to be super noticeable on a burndown chart. It's not going to be out of expected range much, if at all. Yeah, oh, there, there'll still be some because writing those tests first and then building does take some time. Once you get used to it, like as we've gotten along further, we're faster and faster at it. I completely expect if our team doesn't change too much in the next year or so, that we'll be doing it all the time because we're just used to that. Yeah. You know, again, you've got to, you got to check the rate of change a little bit, especially mm-hmm. again, when you don't have management approval. Now you might be able to do TDD in small doses here and there, but doing it over an entire app is tricky. That's really what it comes down to. So you might be able to sneak some in. And by the way, this is not a bad way to get some practice beforehand and go, Oh yeah, you know, this is a little bit more stable because I did have some tests here around this particular portion because I didn't trust it or I wanted to see how this would work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's okay. It's just when you go, okay, I have a six week sprint and I'm going to switch to TDD at the beginning Yeah, and not tell management. Like that puts the whole idea in a bad spot. It's yeah. a bad sales pitch. What it well, is. No, I mean, if, if you've got, if you've got six weeks to build something that's only going to take you three normally, and you do it with TDD and then come to management and say, hey, I built this with TDD. This is the benefits I got. 
That's one thing. If you've got six weeks to build something that's going to take you six weeks to build, yeah, switching the way you're doing things is going to slow that down and you're not going to meet those commitments. Yeah. And the real thing, too, is you want to get management buy-in, even to the point of them thinking it's their idea. That's very true. It makes everything easier. <laughs> like, don't yeah. discount that. TDD is a lot of work, and schedules will slip if they're built with the expectation of not doing TDD, at least until you have sufficient experience. So you, you've got to kind of build this plan in. The other thing it can do is if they don't know that you're doing that, you look a lot slower than your coworkers. And this can affect performance reviews. It can affect raises. It can affect employment. That's another reason not to be sneaking around doing that. Mm-hmm. It, it can backfire pretty badly. Like I said, um, when when we did it, the first time it was on something that wasn't time sensitive, that was a service for people to use, didn't have to be out at a certain time. So we were able to kind of spend the time getting to know it, but also management knew, hey, we're giving this test-driven development that we learned about a couple of weeks ago a try. Yeah. And the other thing you want to do, and like you did, because um, you, had, you had training on that, right, beforehand, mm-hmm. is get management to send you to training on how to do it. <laughs> and then get the buy-in because they've already bought in if they paid for you to be trained. That's true, especially if they can train the whole team. Yeah. Like if you can get someone to come in and spend a day or two training the whole team on how to do it and then not making everybody do it, but getting the people who are really bought into it, especially if they're on the same project or same area of the project, working together to do it and just prove how effective it can be. And you build up your team's mentors Yeah, that way you too. Do. Like, you've got to have those. You can't just go, oh, we're going to do TDD, and oh, by the way, nobody here knows how to do it, so we're all going to be bumbling along in the dark. You're going to fail in six weeks, and you're going to stop doing it, and you're never going to do it again. That's mm-hmm. what's going to happen. That's So don't do that. <laughs> don't set things up where you fail just to get stuff right now. I think all this is leading up to is the, there's a lot of risks if you don't tell management about it and get caught doing it. Yeah, one way or the other, however yeah. you get caught. Um, You're... If you're doing what management thinks is unnecessary work, you can end up in trouble or even fired. Um, doesn't happen as much yeah. these days. But it um, used to. Like 2005 to 2010 time frame, you saw this pretty regularly. I mean, it was just... That's more of a recession back then, too. It was a recession, and so there were fewer development jobs available. And then, you know, companies' budgets are tighter, and people are experimenting, mm-hmm. and they're doing what, what the project manager doesn't think is necessary. And yeah, you just painted a giant target on your head. Yeah. Don't do that. Getting caught can also cause management to be reluctant to allow TDD later on. It also makes them reluctant to trust you. And if you break trust, when you suggest things, they don't get heard. Mm -hmm. Again, this is one of those things that if you have to look at the way your management is set up, because the way mine has been was, all right, if I tried something out, on a less important thing, on something that that wasn't time sensitive, that wasn't, you know, used by everyone, that was just sort of a, a small thing. And then once I had it working, took it to management and showed it to them, the management I had, that's what they wanted. They wanted to see it already working yeah. before you did that. Instead of it being speculative. The other yeah. thing you did is you took a very, very small risk where the upside was making management look good. Right. Versus going, okay, I'm going to take a huge risk where the downside is management looks bad. Yeah. Because if if it had failed on that small little thing we did. Then you just go, hey, you know, I tried this approach and it's dumb. Yeah. And, look, you know, look at this. And here's why it's dumb. And you just educated the manager. And honestly, there are several things that I have tried and other people have tried that we have had those conversations. We're like, that didn't work. Yeah. Yeah, and we do that from time yeah. to time. It's just it's part of it. So that that's okay, but you got to think about how other people are going to react. Yeah, and you have to know your manager and know where you can do this. Doing this on a central part of your application that everyone is using, maybe not the best idea. Yeah, you test at the edges and right. you work your way in. And if you've advocated for automated testing or even TDD in a number of environments, you'll start to recognize the look. And this is something I've seen in various places is you go, okay, if we were driving everything with tests, this would happen. And then you watch the manager's eyes and you'll see the look on their face that tells you that they've, they've had the unsolicited and unwanted TDD evangelism on their team before because they'll kind of cringe and like, no, that's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. 
Guys, test-driven development can work well for you, but it's easy to go off the rails, especially with the kind of examples you see on the web. The basics are easy, but it can be tricky to get right. It takes a while to learn all the hard lessons of TDD, but the goal is ultimately worth it. Even worthwhile goals require you survive until results happen. That pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, okay, I've been hearing this thing. I've heard it three or four times here lately from a variety of different people discussing you know, people that have got personality defects. And they'll say stuff like, well, he's like that. You know, she just reacts that way to this thing. Um, you know, they've got a history. And the notion is that somebody's personality defects are actually permanent and it's just something you have to deal with. I just want to throw something out there. It's not. You can change your personality. In fact, you do. I know people that are really quick to you know jump in and interrupt people and they're very rude and they do all this kind of stuff. They talk to their spouse on the phone and they're deferential. They're capable of keeping a lid on it. They just don't. Don't treat personality defects like they're permanent. Don't look at somebody and go, okay, they, they don't have to change if they're being destructive. Yes, they do. Don't look at yourself that way. It's very, very disingenuous to sit there and go, oh, well, you know, this person, they just, they have a history and they react that way. And that's just a fact of life. That's not an entirely reasonable thing. That's like complimenting Jeffrey Dahmer's cooking. You're making the situation worse. So stop doing that. I, I've, I've heard that like five or six times in the last two weeks. And it's just finally just completely cranked me up. So I just thought I would drop that there. And that's all I've got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.